We're working through uh, our Easter series. Easter might seem a long time ago to you now, but uh, we're working through a series, and, and this has kind of extended beyond Easter. Uh, the, sub- the subject is life hacks. Uh, how, what might we know and understand? What are the hacks for life in coming to terms with the message of Easter? Critical questions, and I hope today what we're going to be looking at is probably one of the most threatened and one of the most important issues for us to deal with in our generation. And it's the question of truth. What is true? In fact, is there such a thing as truth? I think it's a critical question for us to come to terms with. There are some things which are true, and sometimes they jump up and bite us. I don't know whether you've seen the uh, circular going around the internet, been going around for years now, of Bill Gates' 11 rules. Have you seen that 11 rules? Let me read you his 11 rules. Apparently he, well actually, let me, let me burst the bubble. Apparently Gates didn't say this, but it was attributed to him. Supposedly he said it at a high school uh, gathering. Rule number one, life is not fair, get used to it. Rule number two, the world won't care about your self-esteem. Rule number three, you will not make $40,000 a year right out of high school. Rule number four, if you think your teacher is tough, wait till you get a boss. Rule number five, flipping burgers is not beneath your dignity. Rule six, If you mess up, it's not your parents' fault. I think it's a great one, that, as a parent. Rule seven. Before you were born, your parents weren't as boring as they are now. (laughs) Rule number eight. Your school may have done away with winners and losers, but life has not. Rule nine. Life is not divided into semesters. You don't get summer off. Rule 10, television is not real life. Rule 11, be nice to nerds. Chances are you'll end up working for one. And it's a belting end, isn't it? I remember my first year, summer, when I started school. The shock that the weather was getting nice, The days were getting longer, and I was going to get one week off. Some truth things jump up and hit us, don't they? It's like, poof, is this life? This is life. They're kind of some truths, but there are other more complex truths. Truths about life and God and eternity what might we see and understand and what might we gather from the Easter story about those things? How did it affect those people right at the very beginning? What did they come to terms with? The Easter story is a fascinating event. It's incredible. 2,000 years of Christianity 2,000 years of the message 
of Jesus of Nazareth has been increasingly growing across the globe. Christianity on a worldwide stage is not declining. It is growing. I think it's really important for us to come to terms with that. We get the kind of the newspaper, newspaper reports saying that Christianity is on the decline. And, and in, in Great Britain, in lots of ways, I think it is. But then I also think the kind of Christian feel is declining. But churches that are really vibrant and holding to the message of Jesus are actually growing. I think that's really interesting. But on a global basis, the church, the message of the gospel is growing and growing and growing. Sub-Saharan Africa, South America, Asia, the gospel China of all places, South Korea, the Christian message is exploding across the globe. What I find amazing about that is that I think somebody calculated that a third of the Gospels are centered around the death of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Who would ever conceive of creating a world-changing movement which is based on the death of its founder? That, that does not make sense, does it? Why would you create something and look to change the world and for a third of your account talk about the death or the events surrounding the death of the founding person? Unless that death is absolutely crucial to the whole of the story. And that, that's, I just want to put it right up there, right out up front, that this terrible imposter, this awful experience of the death of Jesus is central to the message of Jesus. It's something which crowds in on all of us, doesn't it? Horrifically, awfully, terribly, soul-sappingly, this experience of loss and death. And so I want to really look at the account that we, we read a little bit earlier, which I think is going to be on the screen, and we're going to look at that and see what might we learn from the experience of just one person. One person that we don't know, virtually we don't know anything about. There's speculation around him, but really we can't be sure. He, is, he isn't even named. It's a Roman centurion. That, that's all we know about him. And he, he speaks one sentence in the Bible, but it is absolutely critical to our understanding of this death. Let's have a look at how we open up. I think the first thing is we see an incredible event is taking place. Look at how it opens up. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. That is just a kind of statement to us, isn't it? 
It's just a thing that is said. And, and I don't know about you, but I'm guessing that a lot of us, our first thoughts are, hmm, okay, scientifically, how did that happen? Uh, that is not where we would go if we were a first century Jewish person. We would know and we would understand that whenever there is a moment of surprising experience of darkness, it is speaking powerfully about a relationship with God. And it's a relationship which in that moment is speaking about God's judgment. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, darkness is experiencing the judgment of God. John speaks about it when he opens his gospel. He talks about the contrast of light and darkness. But way back, when God's people were taken out of Egypt, the Egyptian nation was judged under darkness. Darkness was, was a spiritual voice for the Hebrew people. And so when Matthew writes this down and records this as a Jewish person, writing about the King Jesus that he has experienced, he says that there was darkness for those hours. And you say, okay, that's interesting. Whoa, 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 whoa. There was darkness when Jesus died. Isn't that amazing? When we just stop and we pause and we, we connect those two things, we say darkness is about God's judgment, and then we say God's judgment is connected with Jesus dying. Already, Matthew is trying to wave flags in our face, saying, don't treat this as just an account of things. I want to speak to you powerfully about what is going on. One of the wonderful things I find about reading through the message of the Bible, and particularly when you read through a chapter like this, is that the writers use hardly any words to speak big messages. <laughs> and they speak big messages through a few words because they connect what they're saying to the rest of the big story. You see that? If you're kind of getting used to reading the Bible, that is really important. The writers use a relatively small number of words, but they connect them to the whole of the message of the Bible. It's darkness. And your mind goes back to Egypt. It goes back to the darkness of God's judgment. And we say, wow, God is judging at this moment when His Son is dying on the cross. And in that darkness... A voice cries out. There's a little bit of a moment where somebody responds to that voice, but I just want to speak first about the words that Jesus cries out in a loud voice. What must it have been like around the cross? I think there must have been a moment, you know, when it went dark when people were wondering what is going on here. And then there was a few hecklers and there were a few people shouting out. But in that darkness, Jesus shouts out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which is Aramaic. It's the natural language that Jesus would have spoken. 
The words are incredible. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we are wondering who is being judged in this darkness, Jesus makes it clear. We could have understood it that God is judging the people who are crucifying His Son, couldn't we? Apart from Jesus saying this, Jesus corrects us. He says, if you think that that God is judging the people who drove in the nails in the Romans or the people who judged Him in the high priest's court, the Jews, it is neither that God is judging at this moment. It is Jesus who is being judged. And Jesus explains that with a loud voice that shouts out in that darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the things that the Bible portrays right the way through the gospel accounts until this moment is the oneness in the relationship between Jesus and His Father in heaven. It's as though in in that kind of physically separated relationship, there is this spiritual oneness all the time. Jesus uses a shocking word for God. Yahweh, Jehovah, is the word that the Jewish people would have used for the God who is not seen. In fact, they wouldn't even write it down. And Jesus says, my Father... It's a phrase that he continues to use all the way through the time that he is speaking speaking to people about the God who he is. He says, my Father in heaven, me and my Father are one. There's lots of ways in which he uses Father. And then at this moment, everything changes. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the one bracket of voice I want us to think about. The moment where Jesus speaks about Him bearing judgment. But the the thing that I want to do is now to analyze what happens in the subsequent period of time. Verse 50 says this, And when Jesus had cried out again, which another of the Gospel writers tells us the word that was shouted was tetelestai, It is finished, was the word that was shouted out. When Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit and he died on the cross. I want us to look at that moment. Matthew tells us six incredible things happened at the moment that Jesus died. And I want us to just pause and work through and say, Six things happened. How do they speak to us today? First thing, Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. At that moment, you see Matthew makes it clear, at the moment where Jesus shouted on the top of the hill above Jerusalem, if you go to Jerusalem, the place where Jesus died is above and was originally outside of the original city walls, but it was looking down over the city. Looking down over the city, you would see the temple and the temple mount. At the moment where Jesus died, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, that's all it says in Matthew, doesn't it? The 
curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Which curtain? <laughs> does the curtain, does, was it windows? Were the windows that had curtains up at them? What is the curtain that Matthew is talking about? Matthew is saying, you'll get this. If you know the whole of the story, you'll know the significance of this moment. And you'll only understand it when you understand the temple. The temple is critical. It's this big space. And outside there's a huge courtyard, court of the Gentiles. Uh, and there's all sorts of stuff going on and people would be preparing themselves to come into the temple. And then the temple kind of in layers. I think that's a good way to describe it. Kind of in layers, it gets significantly more and more special <laughs> to the point where right at the center of the temple, there is what is called the Holy of Holies. What is that all about? It is a symbolic kind of closed off space which defines the presence of God with His people. That's what the Holy of Holies is. It's, it, it's why the people in God's, as people walked around the wilderness, God's people walked around the wilderness, they built a kind of mobile temple, the tabernacle, and they had a place right in the middle which was a closed-off tent where they put the Ark of the Covenant, and right in the center, God said, at this place, I will make myself present with you. It's this, this kind of spiritual location. I'm with you, God says. Now, there's all sorts of stuff that has gone on at the temple. And it's kind of got progressively worse and worse and worse over all of the years. But this central space is kept. And right in the center, you've got the Holy of Holies. And that's protected by a temple, by a curtain. A curtain from top to bottom, huge, heavy, thick curtain because nobody could go in there. Nobody could go in there except for the priest once a year. And the priest went into, into the presence of God once a year to make atonement for the people. This, this priest, that's what a priest does. A priest stands in between God and the people. And the priest goes into that place and appears before God for the sake of the people. Do you get that? That's why in this church we are not priests. Because we don't stand as representatives for you. We are all free to come into the presence of God. Why? Because the temple ripped from top to bottom temple curtain. Because when Jesus died, whew, it opened up the presence of God. It's as though this kind of, the words say, at the moment where the temple seemed to be significant, it's ripped to bits. And at the moment where the death of a man seems to be insignificant, it becomes everything. And there's a transfer of how we come into the presence of God from that space down there to this person up here. That's what it says. That's awesome. We don't need to go to Jerusalem. We need, don't need to go anywhere 
anymore because of Jesus on a cross. That's incredible. It means that you and me do not have to go to a special place because of Jesus on a cross. That's the first one. Second one, verse 51, the back end. The earth shook, the rocks split. There's a lot going on in our world. And we are coming to terms with stuff which the Bible has been saying for two millennia. And it's this, that the world is creaking. It's, cr it's a creaking world. It's a groaning world. Extinction, rebellion. Greta Thunberg. If you know anything about what's been going on over these past few months, those two names speak about the crisis of the physical world. When Jesus died, the physical world is shaken. That's amazing. I worry, to an extent, I worry about the mess that we've made of the world. I think we have a responsibility to be good custodians of this world. We have not done what we should do because we've messed up in this world. And the world is a mess. And it is right that we look to redeem it. But you know, when people say it's too late already, Paul said 2,000 years ago, it's too late already. Because the world is a mess. But... At the death of Jesus, God shakes the world. Why? Because He's saying there is a future. And the death of Jesus is absolutely connected with the future, which is the coming again of Jesus. And at that point, the world will be shaken beyond belief. All the bad stuff will be shaken out and it will be reconstituted, and it will be a world once more, which is how it should be. I am bothered about climate change, but I do not fear that we've blown it. We blew it when we first rejected God, but one day it will be right again. Second thing, third thing, verse 52, the tombs broke open. Wow. It's as though Matthew is saying you need to understand that the most dramatic, huge, incredible things that are beyond your cope, ability to cope with, beyond your ability to do anything about, I'm going to shake. I'm going to break open tombs. We said right at the beginning, death is a terrible, terrible, awful thing. The death of the King of heaven and earth portrayed here is a terrible, awful thing. But at that death, God strikes at the very emblem of death. He breaks tombs. That's amazing, isn't it? He breaks tombs. 
He shatters them. The very emblem that we carry, which is our experience of our limited frailty and the temporary nature of our experience, Jesus strikes. The direct connection of Jesus' death striking at the emblems of death is why we sing, now death, where is your your sting? We have no other way to sing against death other than through Jesus. Now, death, where is your sting? Our resurrected King has rendered you defeated. Aren't they amazing words? Verse 4, that's fourth thing rather, verse 52. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Do you know, it took me a while to realize this. Resurrection, our hope of resurrection in Jesus is absolutely rooted in the resurrection, resurrection of Jesus. Paul makes that really clear. Resurrection is everything. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we have no hope. But because Jesus rose from the dead, we have hope. But here we have people rising from the dead when Jesus dies. (laughs) What's going on there? Surely people don't rise from the dead until Jesus rises again. Surely, if that's the connection. Apart from this... At the point where Jesus dies, people are raised from the dead because His resurrection is guaranteed, even though it's not happened yet. That's it. It's as simple as that. It's like saying, Jesus dies and He breaks open tombs, but those who had faith in His death are raised to life. Because I'll guarantee that Jesus is going to rise again. It's just, Matthew is saying huge things here. Number five, verse 53, those who were raised from the dead, they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city. So there's now a connection with His resurrection. They came out of the tombs and went into the holy city. Oh, come on, this is just, what's going on? Why? Why? This is just getting complicated. It's just, Matthew's just packing so much into here. Well, a few minutes ago, we threw a huge line all the way back to the judgment of God way back in Egypt. Now we're going to throw a huge line all the way forward to the coming again of Jesus. That's what happens here. Because people who had died end up in the holy city. Now, if you read Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, it makes it really clear that John portrays it like this. I can see the new Jerusalem coming down. Why? Because it's the presence of God. It's God with us. And, and he's just saying in this little statement... The people who came to life went into the presence of God. This symbolic place which is so important to us. They died again. But one day they'll live. 
and they will live eternally in this holy place, this place where God is present again. Number six, verse 53, they appeared to many people. This was written a number of years after the death of Jesus. And Matthew is saying here that people who died came back to life and they appeared to many. What he's saying to you and to me is it's all based on witnesses. It's based on witnesses. These events are not some spiritual voodoo, some kind of spooky stuff. It's things that happened. And they came and they spoke. And they were witnesses to what had happened. And that is all that's happening now, right now. Right now, as I'm speaking, somebody who has witnessed the personal experience in my life of the true living Jesus is just bearing witness to that fact. I haven't seen Jesus. I haven't, there's nothing, I haven't kind of died and come back to life. Nothing dramatic, nothing amazing like that. I'm just saying my life has been changed because of Jesus. And I am witnessing that to you today. Just as maybe your friends have been witnessing that to you today. Just as you are, I want to encourage you to continue witnessing that into the world today because Jesus lives. Our experience and our witness to that fact is central. Six things. All of that in just a few verses. And then, as we're working through that, we get to the end. Jesus dies. And then in verse 54, we read this. When the centurion of those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. It is only this week that I've noticed it's not just the centurion. We always talk about just the centurion, don't we? But actually the guards as well. They make a profound statement. The centurion is kind of like the spokesperson for them. But the centurion says, at that moment, surely he was the Son of God. I think what Matthew is saying is quite simply this. He testified that what he saw and experienced changed his life. He got up that morning, and what was it? It was just another crucifixion. That's all it was. It was just another day. And yet, in that moment, God breaks into his life with the most incredible experience where he turns around and he says, the whole of my life has changed because God was with me today. I think that's just breathtaking. I think that is right at the... 
You know, we, we've talked about all sorts of complicated bits about the story of the Bible, but it, it just rests on this. Coming to terms with the reality of this truth, the claim that the Bible makes something which is true, according to the Bible, is Jesus is God. And He came here, and He died, and He rose again. Now, we've been talking right at the beginning about can we know what's true? It, it is faith. You've got to believe that. But in a world which is struggling with, in this world, what can we describe and what, we can, what can we know is true, Jesus stands apart. Because He is the one person in all of human history who does not claim to be of this world, but breaking into this world. It's, it, that is the one difference. It's the one thing which makes a statement of truth which Jesus makes no longer relative that His view is as good as my view. If He is who He claims to be, by default, His view is superior. Simple as that. If He is God, His view is superior. It's better than mine. It's better than yours. It's better than any kind of ideologies or clever thinking that we want to construct. If God came into the world, it's a game changer. And that's what the centurion saw. We can talk about all sorts of things in the Bible. What, what does it mean by this? You might want to disagree with me with some of my interpretations of what Matthew said in those bits. That's fine. There are different views, but fundamentally, there's this. Jesus is God. Coming into the world, dying on a cross, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because He is bearing my sin if I trust in Him. If I believe in Him, He is bearing all of that horror of working out who I am. It's in Him. Who was the first person who was converted through the death of Jesus? A Roman centurion. The person who ordered the nails to be driven into his hands. The person who woke up that morning and expected it to be just another day of blood and gore. Just another day. And by the end of the day, his world was turned upside down because that is what the message of Jesus does. It turns our world upside down. It means that no longer can I think of the message of Jesus as an add-on to my life. It is central to everything. To everything. You see, Bill Gates' truths for life, I think some of them are great. We need to listen to them. We need to realize that there's some true realities. Uh, we, we probably need to tell our kids that this is what it's really like rather than what we want to hope it is for them because here's some realities. But I do not want any of us to be shocked by the reality of Jesus as though suddenly this truth is something that we didn't know about. 
And so the, the moment where Jesus returns is a shock to us. It will be a shock in one sense, but it shouldn't be a surprise that this is the way it is. In fact, I would say for all of us now, it, we can never say it's a surprise. And my hope is that all of us are looking forward to that with hope because Jesus is the one truth and the one hope.